0: TROUBLE IS CHINA'S ECONOMY IN. THE COUNTRY'S TRADE NUMBERS FALL AGAIN. WHAT'S GOING ON WITH CHINA'S ECONOMIC RECOVERY? ONE OF AMERICA'S MOST VITAL ALLIES IN ASIA IS NOW AT RISK. CHINESE CYBER SPIES REPORTEDLY WARMED THEIR WAY INTO JAPAN'S MOST SENSITIVE DEFENSE NETWORKS. HOME BUYERS FROM CHINA MAKING A COMEBACK IN U.S. REAL ESTATE. <laughs> China is facing huge challenges brought by the recent flood. Many angry citizens protested their local governments. We have an expert break down China's unusual flood.
1: The Chinese regime is skillful at blaming all the disasters on nature.
0: Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. New data is out on China's economy Tuesday. The numbers are worse than expected. Exports fell nearly 15 percent in July, while imports also took a dip by 12 percent. China's exports have been falling for three months in a row, and imports have been dropping for five months. This suggests weakening demand for Chinese products, both at home and abroad. Even though Beijing has been trying to revive its economy after ending the pandemic lockdowns, so far, there's no massive rebound. The new numbers suggest that economic growth for the third quarter would likely keep dragging its feet. China's exports to the U.S. in July also took a dip, over 20 percent, compared to the same period last year. Its imports from the U.S. also fell by over 11 percent. China still sells more to the U.S. than it buys from America, though that trade deficit also took a plunge, over 20 percent. China's imports from Russia also dropped in July, the first monthly decline since 2021. Its exports to Russia jumped over 70 percent. Pressure is building on Beijing to revive the slumping economy. Last week, authorities said they would roll out a series of moves to boost the economy. That includes stimulating spending in cars, real estate and service sectors. Guess who's dominating foreign buying of U.S. homes right now? Since Beijing lifted its zero-COVID-19 policy, Chinese homebuyers are showing an increased interest in American homes and vacation residencies. But why? Here's more.
2: American home purchases are seeing a comeback of Chinese buyers. According to the National Association of Realtors yearly report, China's zero COVID 19 policy has prompted Chinese home buyers to look for homes in America rather than invest in Chinese properties. Now, a significant number of these offshore buyers are aiming to establish themselves as American residents and citizens. But even when China was under lockdown, Chinese buyers remained influential contributing more than $13 billion towards U.S. home purchases. The figure accounted for one-fourth of the total spent by foreign buyers. Foreign purchases of U.S. homes have declined in the past due to housing shortages and increased borrowing costs. The National Association of Realtors anticipates a revival in foreign transactions, particularly with Chinese buyers, as international travel resumes post-pandemic. Chinese buyers are notably drawn to locations like California and Florida for their property investments. Worth noting, many of these buyers are already residing in the United States, with a preference for single-family homes and townhomes for vacation or rental opportunities.
0: The Chinese Communist regime has yet to release a nationwide death toll for Typhoon Suri, which began surging in China since late July. Over 800 towns were flooded, more than 1.2 million residents were relocated, and many lost their lives. Please be aware that the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers due to its graphic nature. Videos shared on social media reportedly show the bodies of China's flood victims. Many were seen left abandoned on the streets. Some were seen buried in the mud. The flood also destroyed farms. Bodies of livestock were seen lying on the streets. Concerns are rising over contagious diseases given the hot weather. Survivors were shocked to see what had become of their homes. <laughs> One survivor said more bitter days are coming. I really hope everyone can understand that our difficulties have just begun. From the moment we were rescued, and the hardest times are still ahead. Many local residents say they believe there were human factors that contributed to the disastrous floods. Protests are erupting in Chinese cities hit hard by the recent floods. Local residents are expressing anger over their losses and over the way local authorities handled the floods. Here's the story.
2: In northern China's Baoding City, local residents marched in front of the county government on Sunday demanding compensation for their losses. Local authorities deployed riot police to suppress the crowd. A video shared on social media appears to show officers punching an unarmed protester. And it's not an isolated incident. Some residents also appeared to protest the way the floods were covered in Chinese state media, which blames natural causes. Protests erupted in front of the local government in Hebei's Bajo city, some protesters were seen holding a banner, which reads, give me my home back. The discharged floodwater is obviously the cause, but it was blamed on rainfall instead. Wang Wei Luo, a Chinese hydrology expert, breaks it down.
1: The Chinese regime is skillful at blaming all the disasters on nature. They say the rainfall submerged your city. The construction team sent by the government was excavating the land there. That's a human factor.
2: A time-lapse video shows that although the rainfall was not heavy, the water level rose rapidly in less than 30 minutes, suggesting the water might have come from elsewhere.
1: So if you were to dig open the riverbanks, the floodwater from the river will overflow, redirecting floodwaters from the river into farms, residential areas, rural villages, or what are known as designated flood zones. This is also a form of flood discharge. Under the natural conditions, floodwaters from Yongding River would not flow into Zhouzhou City.
2: Wang said releasing floodwater is a common strategy around the world, but he highlighted the difference between China and other countries.
1: Other countries also establish certain designated flood zones where there are no residents.
2: The CCP's top official in Hebei sparked outrage for saying the downstream cities around Beijing should serve as a moat for the capital. Hebei Province is one of the hardest-hit regions. Many there believe this is because authorities released the floodwaters onto the smaller cities in an effort to protect the capital city of Beijing. This is despite Hebei being heavily populated. Hundreds of thousands of Bajo residents lost their homes overnight. Villagers in the region are facing food shortages. Some had to dive into the water to fish. Some local authorities admitted receiving instructions to release water from the reservoirs. Official data shows the gates of at least seven water reservoirs were opened in Hebei, and that as of Monday, the floods impacted almost 3.4 million people.
0: A U.S. ally hacked by China, U.S. officials telling the Washington Post, Chinese hackers gained access to Japan's classified defense networks in 2020. One former U.S. military official telling the Post, quote, it was bad, shockingly bad. The heads of the National Security Agency reportedly went to Tokyo to brief Japan's defense minister on the hack. Japan, meanwhile, declined to confirm the report. A top Japanese government spokesperson said Tuesday he was aware of the report but will refrain from providing detailed information due to the nature of the matter. He added Japan and the U.S. have always been close in communication. The CCP did not immediately comment. Officials note this hack could hinder intelligence sharing between the U.S. and Japan given the U.S. military bases stationed there. This comes amid growing concerns over Chinese state-sponsored hacking. The Biden administration has been on the hunt for suspected Chinese malware that could cripple the nation's military and civil infrastructure, with one U.S. official calling it a ticking time bomb that China could use to sever U.S. access. That's especially in case the U.S. were to respond to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, Japan is boosting its cyber defenses. It's pledging to expand its cybersecurity force by 4,000 over the next five years. Launch a cyber command to monitor 24-7 and spend over $7 billion to secure the network. Push and pull between Beijing and a key U.S. ally, the Philippines. Beijing on Tuesday releases this video where a Chinese Coast Guard ship was spraying a Philippine vessel with a water cannon. China says it's a warning for the Philippines. The Filipino government is upset with the incident. Its officials say the Chinese ship was blocking the Filipino ship from delivering food supplies to troops on a disputed island. The Philippine government summoned China's ambassador following the incident. The U.S. also released a statement saying it stands with the Philippines. Beijing is not pulling back, though. China asked the Philippines to tow away a grounded warship from a disputed territory in the South China Sea. Multiple countries lay claim to the area, including China and the Philippines. Two Chinese spies in the U.S. Navy have been arrested. Sailors Thomas Zhao and Patrick Wei shared photos, videos and documents about Navy ships with a Chinese intelligence officer. NTD's Chris Beers spoke to Stephen Rogers, retired lieutenant from the Office of Naval Intelligence, to unpack this revelation.
3: Do these recent arrests tell us anything about the extent of Chinese espionage operations in the U.S. military?
4: Well, it tells me the extent of uh, some failures within our own military intelligence apparatus. You know, the Navy seems to be prioritizing more on a woke agenda. Uh, rather than a warfighting agenda. And that hasn't slipped by the Chinese Communist Party. So they're zeroing in on our military as they have business industry, uh, educational institutions, and our government.
3: Talk to us more about those vulnerabilities. What are we missing?
4: Well, you know, when I was in military intelligence, we had a very robust and very strict uh, uh, rules of engagement with regard to intelligence. you protect it at all costs. Uh, You make sure your intelligence and counterintelligence Uh, capabilities never fail. There was a failure here, and that's what truly has to be investigated. And
3: do we have any sense for what that failure is in this particular situation?
4: Not in this particular situation. But I will just say this, that somewhere along the chain of command, somebody wasn't watching. When I was in the military, you were being watched closely uh, by your superiors, there were evaluations, there were, uh, you know, they were checking up on you constantly. But I think our chain of command has to be looked at very carefully and see where that failure is in that chain.
3: Now, what do you think we can do to defend against Chinese espionage without discriminating against Chinese Americans?
4: Well, uh, we have to go back to the old days where uh, there was a lot of human intelligence. That means intelligence on the ground, talking to people, getting information from people. It's all a matter of prioritizing. You're either going to prioritize your military, in this case, the Navy, as a war fighting machine that will take out the Chinese Communist Party in any uh, conflict, or you're going to prioritize it uh, in another direction. We need to get back to those days where we used uh, human intelligence more so then we would be using electronic capabilities at this point.
3: And you mentioned we're focusing on the wrong priorities. What are those wrong priorities in your mind?
4: Well, I've talked to active duty and reservists, and they're concerned about uh, not addressing a superior officer as he, she, uh, the, the pronouns, uh, the identity uh, concerns. That has no place in the military. Uh, in the military, you're trained to fight a war and to win it. And the Chinese Communist Party has been very, very aware of what's going on. And uh, I, I believe what we have to do is turn that tide and get back to that, uh, that good Ronald Reagan philosophy about winning wars, uh, You know, strength. You have to be strong to prevent a war. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you again. Well, thank you very much.
0: Another big story to look out for, Chinese propaganda on a London Street graffiti wall becoming a canvas for protest messages against the CCP. How did it happen? That and more coming up tomorrow on China In Focus. But coming up today, strategic ambiguity or strategic clarity? What's the state of U.S.-China relations as Taiwan becomes a sticking point? Or more importantly, where will it go? Lawmakers on Capitol Hill point to Ukraine as an example. What impact would Taiwan's future have on the U.S.? We sat down with Mike Termont, Libertarian presidential candidate, for more. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Zooming in on U.S.-China relations, Taiwan has become a sticking point. Some on Capitol Hill point to Ukraine as a lesson, saying the U.S. needs to focus on itself rather than sending billions of dollars abroad. How would Taiwan's future impact the U.S.? We sat down with Mike Termat, libertarian presidential candidate, for more. Mike Tremont, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
5: you, Tiffany. It's a great joy to be with you.
0: Where do you see the U.S.-China relationship going?
5: That It is largely up to the United States government where this relationship goes. I would hope, first of all, I hope that there's a change in government in, in Washington. But having said that, I would hope that our government adopts a stance that suggests that we're interested in pursuing As much free trade as possible, as tight a relationship as possible in a commercial sense, and at the same time back off of this notion that we need to be in the Pacific, projecting our own military hegemony, and to do so at the sole exclusion of any other power trying to exert its influence in the area. By the way, I also think that we need to get rid of this idea of strategic ambiguity, in terms of how we view Taiwan.
0: And if we get rid of the strategic ambiguity, what would be in its place then?
5: I think that we need to be clear with the American people, and I think that we need to be clear with the rest of the world, that there is no role for ambiguity in foreign relations that we need to recognize that the separation of mainland China and Taiwan was the result of a civil war.
0: What is your stance then? Because in 1979, we signed the Taiwan Relations Act, where by law, the U.S. has to help Taiwan defend itself. That doesn't mean we go to war on behalf of Taiwan. It's just that we help them defend themselves. How do you read that then?
5: I would read that pretty much the way you described it. There is an element of ambiguity there because it's not clear what that help would entail. But we have certainly allowed investors to believe that we would back up Taiwan in an important defensive way if there were to be an invasion, which I believe is one of the reasons why we have seen so much technological investment in Taiwan, parenthetically other types of investment as well. And so I think that we have gotten ourselves into a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where we have sent the signal that we would back up Taiwan in a military conflict, it's hard to unwind. But if we were to go back a generation ago, and instead of pursuing ambiguity, if we had been clear this is not in America's interest to treat Taiwan the same way that we would treat a part of the United States, the investment wouldn't have taken place we wouldn't have a situation like we have today where we feel like we have to make sure that status quo is maintained. It's part of
0: the first island chain blocks of China's military navy, especially from getting into the waters, getting potentially to Hawaii, Western continental US. There's the economic front, the Taiwan Strait is kind of seen as where a lot of international trade goes through. And then there's also- Which is
5: also very true.
0: And then there's the ideological side, right? It's like Taiwan's a democracy that's worthy of defense. What would be your stance then in that case? Do we just let Taiwan crumble? Would it be important to America? What happens there?
5: I think that Taiwan is as important as any other partner in a commercial sense, but we should not be waging war over ideological principles of, we like democracy, for example. If, if it is true that we believe that Taiwan's existence reflects an I- interest and by existence I mean its separately governed uh, island, if we believe that that's in our interest simply because Taiwan is a democracy, then I think that we also need to recognize that a truly democratically run organization like the federal government of the United States to the extent to which we want it to be so needs to project military power, needs to maintain a foreign policy, which is aligned with American principles, which is aligned with the ethics of the American people. And the ethics of the American people, by and large, are not to go to war over a situation which was originated with a civil war in China.
0: But what is your response to this, say, unrestricted warfare that we see coming out of China? It's not war in the conventional sense of, say, bombs, tanks, all that, but through, say, information warfare, through predatory economic practices, all these different ways. How do you view that?
5: I would actually shift resources to protecting intellectual property and foreign nationals who live in the United States and who find themselves in awkwardly intimidating situations because of the Chinese government imposing itself both on American citizens and on Chinese foreign nationals who who live here. These are people who are, if on American soil, deserve the protection of the American government in the same sense as anyone else. As far as internet-based crime, we are relatively vulnerable compared to the threat that is emerging in the next generation.
0: Well, Mike Turvat, thank you so much for your time.
5: Thank you for your time, Tiffany. It's been a great joy to be with you.
0: That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.